There's no secret formula for scaling support and boosting customer satisfaction. But there is the all-new service hub from HubSpot, bringing service and support together in one powerful platform so you can deliver the best experiences possible and free up reps' time with an AI-powered help desk. Also, you can keep customers happy. Secrets out. Service Hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, August 9th. I'm Mark Dent here with Rob Litterst, and you're listening to The Hustle Daily Show. Today, we're going to discuss how everything is sky high in the housing market, the prices, the pessimism, and potentially the solution. But first, let's just talk about some other business and tech news. Rob, what have you been uh, looking into? Okay, so the first thing that crossed my plate today, Mark, is Anheuser-Busch InBev is offloading 40% of its craft beer portfolio, the craft beer renaissance. I don't even know if it's a renaissance or if it's a revolution or or which one of those terms applies. I think it was a revolution, yeah. Any liquor store that I go into now has like a million of those four packs of 8% IPAs. It's just insane. It's like the only thing that you see now when you go in there. But that's a little rabbit hole getting away from the moral of the story. So Anheuser-Busch InBev is selling eight craft brands to Canadian cannabis company Tilray Brands in an $85 million cash deal. And for those at home who are wondering what those brands are, some of the brands that they're selling are Widmer Brothers, which I've never heard of, Red Hook Brewery, which I have, and Shock Top, which I definitely have. I think Shock Top is Anheuser-Busch's like wheat beer, yeah. right? Shock Top's a big one. Yeah. AB InBev had gone full bore into craft beer over the last decade. In 2019, they spent $300 million to buy the remaining stake of Craft Brew Alliance, which gave it brands like Red Hook, which we just mentioned, Widmer Brothers, and Kona. Oh, yeah. They already owned Goose Island, still do. Yeah, so $85 million cash deal, $300 million is what they were paying for some of these same brands, and granted some others, just four years ago. And the interesting thing that you mentioned earlier is that this is kind of a signal of where drinking habits are going right now, because Molson Coors is making kind of a different move that I think goes along with this. Well, I mean, it's incredible because, you know, you mentioned Goose Island there and AB InBev bought that in 2011. And that was kind of like the opening salvo in like this run of acquisitions by these major beer companies. They started to purchase these friendly craft brands that people thought of as indie and were right. indie, frankly, and then stopped being indie because, you know, AB InBev, Molson Coors, they were buying out these really cool craft brands because it seemed like, well, that's what people want. But now it doesn't seem like that's what people want because, you know, there's another news story that we were reading about here yesterday that kind of shows the direction where things are going. So Molson Coors, the big rival of AB InBev, has added bourbon and rye brand Blue Run Spirits to its roster. So that's a big, big deal for them. Blue Run's premium whiskeys, they retail as high as $250 per bottle. And spirits are just more popular than beer right now. It kind of depends on where you're getting your numbers from, but the liquor market surpassed beer for the first time, either late last year or earlier this year. And those numbers, according to the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, look like this. The share of revenue for spirits, i.e. liquor, is 42.1% versus 41.9% for beer. So it's very close. You know, that's a pretty big deal. I have a few ideas as to why this is happening. First of all, I feel like there's like a really big health wave. Yeah. And not saying that like liquor is healthy. No. That's not where I'm going here. (laughs) It's not. It feels healthier though, because there's less of it maybe. 
Right. It feels healthier to drink one cocktail than to drink like a few beers. Even though it isn't. They talk about like how tequila is actually the healthiest liquor, which tequila has been on the rise too. I think we've covered that in previous pods. Yeah. Just again, listeners, not healthy. Not healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Do not misinterpret. The other thing is there are a lot of canned cocktails now, including stuff like High Noon. That's just gotten so popular, these refreshing cocktails that people will buy instead of beer that are pretty much like organized in the beer aisle. So like they're beer adjacent. It's not like you're buying a bottle of liquor. You're drinking these seltzer spirits. But anyway, those two things have just gotten so popular that I could totally see that taking away from the beer market. Yeah, I feel like the new race in the beer industry now is A, you know, to buy up those liquor brands and then B, to come up with a unique name for the seltzer that is the exact same as everyone else's. (laughs) Yes. There's this craft brand called Boulevard in Kansas City, which is now owned by one of the major players, but they call their seltzer Quark. And I have no idea what that has to do with seltzer, but yeah, that's the new race. Come up with a cool name for seltzer so it seems different. <laughs> I love the name Boulevard. Cork, I'm a little up in the air on. All right, so let's move on now. So Amazon's Prime Day in July brought in $12.7 billion. Based on that success, the retail giant is holding another in October where they're going to be targeting holiday shoppers extra early. But it's not all great news for Amazon. After years of investigation, the FTC is expected to file an enormous antitrust suit against the e-commerce giant. If it does, it could potentially force the company to break up. Now, that's a big, big potentially, by the way, because nobody knows yet exactly what the suit would cover if that suit does indeed happen. But for people who've been you know, following this story for a while, you're probably aware that Amazon has been targeted over its advertising business practices, its cloud computing business, just about everything, because right. it's this giant trillion-dollar conglomerate. According to Bloomberg, it could be how Amazon leverages its power to influence sellers to use its logistics services, i.e. its shipping, delivery, and everything else. So that's so interesting. I listened to their latest earnings call yesterday, so mm-hmm. I've heard how they talk about this. The funny thing about influencing sellers to use its logistics services is I think it's kind of like a supply and demand thing. Consumers love the way that they deliver stuff so quickly. And Amazon talks about how, you know, they see more orders from people that are doing like one day, two day shipping. And so I think all of that, they can kind of package up and sell to suppliers and say, hey, this is why you should ship with us. But maybe there is something going on there. And for legal kind of people who want to geek out over these things, that's been the big question in antitrust when it comes to Google And to Amazon is it's like, well, the customers tend to say they actually like this. They like Google, even though it has this ridiculously high share of the market and does apply pressure in a lot of ways. And same with Amazon, but, you know, people like it. And so there's a real question here that gets to the heart of what antitrust even means. But maybe we'll discuss that some other time. For today, though, let's move on to our main story about some high highs in housing that are not very good. That specific high high I'm talking about right now is pessimism. It's never been higher. 82% of Americans believe it's a bad time to buy a new house, according to Fannie Mae's National Housing Survey. That's the highest that level has been in the 13-year history of the survey. At the same time, over 60% of Americans say it's a bad time to sell. So there's a confluence of really horrible things going on right now in the housing market and confusing things. I think that the big reason for this, Rob, is that housing affordability is at a 37-year low, according to Business Insider. Yeah, I totally get this, Mark. So my wife and I bought a house in 2019, Mm -hmm. and the rates were so low then that even when we see 
the appreciation on the house, we're still so skeptical of doing anything about it because we don't want to pay the new rates, right? Like we don't want to give up the mortgage rate that we signed up for. And it's like, well, whatever we gain from selling our house, we're going to be putting towards a new house. And so I feel like we are kind of like the prototype of these homeowners that don't want to sell anything right now. And that's one of the reasons that the prices have stayed so high, obviously, which is keeping buyers from actually being able to afford things. It's a tough cycle, I feel like. Oh, absolutely. And you talk about those interest rates. You mentioned 2019, you know, they were still pretty low in 2020 and and into 2021 before they started going up. But, you know, they're even up compared to last year now, closer to 7% on, on average. And the reason why those rates have gone up is because, generally speaking, the Fed wants to bring inflation down and nothing has been inflated like home prices. But they just haven't really gone down that much because there's no availability because people like Rob and others are like, I don't want to sell because I don't want to buy. Right. You can almost see it as like a circle of the things are just going around and around that's leading to these really, really bad vibes. Yeah, it is a tough market out there. You would think with these rising rates that ultimately prices would come down, but it's that reluctance to move that I think is keeping supply so tight yeah. that's keeping those prices so high. And I think it's this combination of a housing market that's really challenging. And we also have a commercial real estate market that's really challenging right now. Yes. And they could meet in the middle and form a beautiful marriage. What, what is going on here and what is this potential solution? Yeah. So people have been talking about the need to convert old office buildings for a while, but a new paper just came out from the National Bureau of Economic Research that kind of suggested just how good of an idea that might be. So the National Bureau of Economic Research team found that 11% of office towers in the 105 most populous U.S. cities could be converted into residential properties. And it outlined 2,000 plus zombie office buildings, those that are empty and unrentable, that could be turned into eco-friendly 200 apartment towers. So according to this paper, this scenario could add 400,000 homes to the market. Wow. Which is, uh, it's a lot. Still just kind of like a dent in like the millions of homes that this country is lacking, but it's still a lot. I mean, there's questions about whether it could really work, but it is cheaper and quicker to retrofit existing structures than starting from scratch. The Inflation Reduction Act is also incentivizing green building. And so if these conversions can meet those efficiency standards, they could qualify for some federal grants. Love that. Yeah, I think that's a super cool idea. I think there's also something cool there in if some of these buildings could also be converted to help with like low-income housing and some of those situations. Yep. I think there's there's a lot there. I think like objectively, it seems like we're not going to need all the office space that we have in the past. I think it'd also be really cool to leave some of the office stuff for new residents. Like, wouldn't it be cool to just have a shared printer across everybody on your floor? Uh, People would love that. (laughs) Like a shared stapler. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I think that everyone kind of feels like this needs to happen. I I think the question is how fast can it and really getting everyone behind it, all the parties behind it that need to be. One complication that I'm going to throw out there, though, 80% of Americans prefer single family homes still. That's according to the trade industry magazine, Builder magazine. So no matter what, more apartment living may not prove entirely popular, but it is probably going to prove necessary. That's tough, but we can still dream, Mark. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for us today. Thank you, everybody, for tuning into The Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. 
Our editor today is Robert Hartwig and our executive producer is Darren Clark. We got a lot more tech and business coverage in our newsletter. So if you're not subscribed, get yourself signed up at thehustle.co slash email. We'll see you tomorrow. Hey, everybody. I got a great podcast to tell you about. It's called Truth, Lies, and Work. And it's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this show, you can join husband and wife team Alan, Leanne Elliott as they dispel myths, impart wisdom, and answer all your questions about finding, keeping, and motivating great people. They actually just did an episode with John Smith, who is the manager and agent of famous Argentinian soccer player Diego Maradona. He talks about in this episode how he was able to manage the global superstar athlete celebrity that Maradona is and was. It's a great listen. You better get out there and check it out. And you can listen to Truth, Lies, and Work wherever you get your podcasts.